Miranda House and in today's episode we'll be talking about disaster capitalism its instances throughout history and especially its relevance and effects in these covid times so i'll start off with the term it was popularized by this book called shock doctrine the rise of disaster capitalism by naomi klein it basically describes how a disaster it ha- it can be like a war or a market crash or a pandemic etc is used to accelerate new liberal economic policies that would have seemed less likely to be accepted by the public prior to the disaster so when uh, she says when she talks about neoliberal economic policies she is basically referring to policies of privatization or so called free trade policies or deregulation to benefit corporations austerity checks which translate to cuts in healthcare education or other social welfare cuts these are the policies she is referring to when she talks about neoliberal economic policies but uh, to be honest it doesn't really have to be the passing of neoliberal economic policies it just basically means anything that's so that supports industries to profit off and ta- profit off and target the sensitivity of the market and the people during disasters during disasters and hence they can profit off of it if that makes sense yeah like that totally makes sense and it kind of seems unlikely that you know a disaster would spur policy that would further negatively impact the masses but you know we've seen instances of it throughout history the biggest example that comes to mind is that of hurricane katrina now when the hurricane actually struck all of those mm-hmm. wealthy politicians economists corporations they immediately formed the area and later are called it an opportunity to yeah. rebuild the city into something that was never before yeah now yeah i mean their goal was to basically wipe out all of the pre hurricane city and capitalize it instead and the destruction if you actually look in hindsight was indirectly caused by the wealthy politician the levees broke mm-hmm. because art because the architects and politicians were not at all concerned about the safety of the poor and the low income class residents that lived within the within the vicinity had the richer neighborhoods on the other hand lived next to the levees then it falls then it falls would have been repaired immediately and the flooding would have never occurred in the first place yeah i mean and the fall would not even have occurred if you think about it like such neighborhoods would not even tolerate such bad quality that is yeah Wow, that that's super interesting. But if you're uh, speaking about disaster capitalism throughout history, I think events like political upheavals have also paved the way for the same. I mean, yeah, I think uh, we all know about the strong U.S. military presence that had existed in Iraq, especially in the 2000s. What happened was that after years of backroom arm twisting, Iraq had officially flung open six of its major oil fields, which actually accounted for half of its known reserves to foreign investors and you know what the surprising thing was that only 25% of that was reserved for iraqi investors in mean, where would you see this level of openness especially in the oil industry in middle eastern countries yeah i think it's because years of punishing sanctions war and violence had actually led to the degradation and starvation of technology which forced iraq to need foreign expertise if you see the us actually reaped capitalistic profits from the disaster it had induced itself i i think i think another example 
could be 1973 when Augusto Pinochet's military junta government assumed power after overthrowing Alande's popular unity government. Pinochet actually boldly embraced free market fundamentals, which included rapid-fire privatization, the elimination of price controls on staples like bread, and attacks on trade unions. The Chicago Boys, the Chilean economists, actually turned Chile into the very first laboratory of Milton Friedman's fundamentalist version of capitalism. People actually treated Pinochet's human rights obliterating regime and economy reformation as two separate things, when in actuality, the terror was the central tool of free market transformation. Also, do any of you know why they would call Chicago Boys? Uh, no. Actually, you know yeah. what? Harita wrote an article on... Yeah, I think it was Harita. She wrote an article on the Chicago Boys. And I, the thing that I remember about them is that they were kind of glorified and looked up to. Like, that's what I remember. Like, but I don't know why they named the Chicago Boys. Oh, wow. But I think uh, the name Chicago Boys because Milton Friedman, uh, he actually taught the Chilean economists at University of Chicago, hence leading to them following his ideology and them being called Chicago Boys. I didn't wow. know. Cool. <laughs> yeah, even I didn't. Like, this This was a very, like, different piece of information. Uh, now, like, if we talk about the capitalism, how can we not talk about India, especially during these times? I think that India's situation especially is just so sucky. Yeah. Now, Dr. Jayati Ghosh, uh, who is an Indian development economist, who is also one of our speakers for Janet this year, <laughs> <Winter Hey. Inc. laughs> now she basically says that the Indian government has been trying to do the same, same disaster capitalism, but with a little variation, more <laughs> like disaster authoritarianism rather than disaster capitalism. Now, she basically says that the government has been using the pandemic to push through a set of policies that is not just centralizing power, well, duh, but is also suppressing dissent and is enabling it to do such a ra- such range of things which would normally not be allowed. Now, let's just quickly go back to March 2020. The Indian government used the pandemic essentially to first of all bring about an extremely brutal and abrupt lockdown, which did not serve the purpose of controlling the pandemic. Just remember, we heard of so many countries not putting a lockdown in the first place and still recovering faster than India. Yeah. And then, and then you know, came the labor laws, which made headlines, which were not only fundamentally anti-labor, but also counterproductive because they didn't actually end up encouraging more investment as they were apparently supposed to. Hmm. And, you know, of course, who doesn't remember our obvious way to act? I remember like being debarred from entering malls unless and until I had installed it on my phone. This whole normalization of state surveillance that seems to be happening to things like Arogya Setu is a big, big example of disaster capitalism and red flags there. Now, anybody would say that, okay, it is pretty voluntary still and it's not, you know, that compulsory and blah, blah. But they're making it impossible to do all kinds of things like getting on a flight or taking a train, getting into government offices. Now, I think even private offices. There are many privacy concerns and rumors regarding how, you know, the government is trying to collect and monitor unwarranted data from the citizens. Yeah. And lastly, how can we not talk about the three farm bills, which are just 
so much of an ideal example as to how the government has tried to pass all these pro-business laws during the pandemic. Now, uh, we all know like how bad the situation in India is. The farm bills have led to the biggest protest ever in history with more than 250 million farmers and workers coming together. And of course, we all know how detrimental these laws are to the small farmers and how they will increase the inequalities. You know, the list of the disadvantages just goes on and on. Lastly, like, uh, of course, the government is not the only one who's trying to take advantage of the pandemic. We have all of these e-commerce companies like Amazon and Flipkart who are taking full advantage of the pandemic to consolidate their market power, insert themselves to even the local supply chain. And all of those Kirana stores, probably in the next few years, they're going to take control over them as well. So the situation is pretty bad. You were talking about how, like, a lot of power is given to them, like, through the IRO, they're, like, monitoring all of our moves. And there was this article that I read, I really forget where the source is from, but they were talking about how in authoritarian government, like, they just bring small, bring about small, small changes. And over a period of time, these small changes add up incrementally. And that shift is not really foreseen by people who are actually living through it. It's just freely given to them, this power. And so... It like, seems Orwellian, but at the same time, it's like our reality sucks, yeah. People easily get swayed away by small changes. Everything goes unnoticed, especially during disasters. Yeah, yeah. And I think you're absolutely right when talking about e-commerce companies like Amazon, because Amazon searched 76% in stocks in 2020. And you know billionaires increased their wealth by... 27.5% at the height of the crisis from April to July. Yeah. Oh my god, that sucks. Can you imagine getting 27% richer when you're already a freaking billionaire? Like, can't imagine. Yeah. I heard that Jeff Bezos basically got 60 billion richer. Like, he was already at, already at around 200 billion and. Yeah, bad. he's about to become a trillionaire by 20 something. Yeah. It's. An immense amount of profiteering. And, but that can also be, it's been blatantly visible throughout the pandemic, to be honest. You could see supplies being sold at inflated prices, elite access to private testing, and retail companies really taking advantage of cheaper physical space and even changing the landlord tenant model to suit themselves. The pandemic has seen the rise of gig economy and casualization of labor along with hedge funds and private equity funds charging higher interest rates, which is simply indicative of the rise of disaster capitalism. In fact, in the U.S., pressure from powerful financial interests in such a uh, disaster had led to deflationary fiscal policies. For example, the Trump proposed $700 billion stimulus plan in March 2020 eventually, eventually led to a reduction in social security funding, which had the potential to further cut funding to programs such as federal old age retirement and survivors and disability insurance. And interestingly, no stimulus package was passed without corporate bailout. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you're talking about coronavirus right now. Um, but you know what? Like, when it comes to coronavirus, we have, like, a certain degree of control over the extent to which the pandemic affects us. You know, we can socially distance, um, keep ourselves, keep our hands clean, not go to social gatherings, etc. 
I'm obviously and unfortunately not talking about frontline workers and those who cannot afford to do like take these measures due to no fault of their own. I'm talking about like us. Like we have like a certain degree of control when it comes to how severely severely we are impacted by the pandemic. But I feel that when it comes to climate change, it impacts all of us, no matter how privileged we may be. Uh, even if we have not contributed to it, it's like we are not responsible for it. We are going to be affected by it, right? Unless, of course, Elon Musk gets us all to Mars by 2050. I'm kidding. I'm obviously saying. Keeping my fingers crossed, I hope that happens. Yeah, I mean, even if it happens, we know that it's going to be for, like, a certain section of society. So, like, I'm not really thrilled about that. But, so, um, I was watching this interview by Naomi Klein of another one of her books called This Changes Everything. And she talks about how addressing climate change, when we're addressing climate change, individual efforts like, uh, I don't know, like changing your uh, plastic straws to steel straws or recycling or, you know, walking to work, etc. They do have an impact, but they don't have an impact on their own. Like they won't lead us to a safe future unless our actions are simultaneously um, matched by you know, government action towards that same goal. For our actions to bear some fruit, the government also has to back us up and the government also has to work towards that same goal. And that, like, makes sense. And it's so, like, infuriating at the same time because our government is kind of toppling down. Yeah, exactly. I mean, of course, like, individual efforts matter, but it won't be of that scale what um, uh, things that the government can do. Exactly. Exactly. That's the point. And um, the citizens' collective disorientation during a crisis, when merely surviving is like such a battle, produces just the right conditions for like disaster capitalists to thrive. Like we are like too baffled to pay attention to policies like that are getting passed, and definitely just like really tired to oppose them. For example, in Canada. The Alberta government abused the destruction offered by the pandemic to um, ma- massively deregulate their oil extraction industries and like push through controversial oil pipelines. And Desha, you've already talked about how in India, you know, we have the farm laws. And it's like the government just needs the right amount of public chaos to implement pro-corporate policies. It's like, no matter what, they'll just go for it. And it sucks. And you know what? So I was researching for this video, and yesterday this YouTuber that I really like called Deanstro Wallace released this video called Influencer 19. It's amazing. Like, I loved it. It's basically like he calls out all these celebrities slash influencers who just are not taking COVID seriously and the consequences of that because they have a lot of power and influence. So I was... I was like, should I include this in the podcast? It doesn't make sense. This is it disaster capitalism? Because they're not, like, profiting off of the disaster. It's just that the disaster is going and they're just simultaneously side by side doing their own stuff, not caring about how their actions might impact others. But then I was like, there are, like, certain people who profit off of the whole COVID, like, educating people about COVID thing and, like, being the responsible person. They, like, profit off of that thing where they're like going around i'm kind of referring to dr michael who i used to really like but now i mean the way his hypocrisy turned like the uh, the level of hypocrisy he just showed like it was just it was just like a to my face it sucks anyway so he kind of went about being this poster child for what you should do during the pandemic 
But then he went on this huge ass cruise with his friends for his birthday, which was apparently supposed to be a surprise. Yeah, it sucked. And all these, it's not just him, all these um, TikTokers, YouTubers with extremely impressionable audience faces have these meet and greets and like parties with no consideration for like the proper protocols. Sucks. I mean... Yeah, anyway, it was a nice video. Uh, this kind of hypocrisy is just like, it's a great turn off because you yeah. really like some uh, actor or some influencer and then you see this kind of hypocrisy and then you're just like, okay, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah, exactly. And he was talking about how before the pandemic, the whole Kardashian general clan, like, they had unimaginable wealth and people would kind of look up to them while while also hating them at the same time. But now, like, the, them showing off their wealth, it's just the reaction that the public has for them is just pure hate. Like, how can you do this while people are losing their loved ones, people are losing their jobs? How can you just bring up your privilege while such suffering exists at the same time? It's not. So I think we should end on a kind of a positive note. Good idea. So I was uh, watching another one of Naomi Klein's videos. And I'm like referring to her a lot this episode. I don't know why, but like, yeah. She, but rightly so. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So she had a TED talk where she was like um, telling us to not lose hope. And um, she talked about how there are not just instances where it's dark talkers. And neoliberal economic policies are um, implemented automatically. It's not always that. Like, there have been instances where a disaster strikes and the government takes, uh, you know, rapid action towards social progress. So instead of economically regressive policies for the public, the government will, you know, further safeguard them by, by propping up more safety nets, etc. And that usually happens when there is already a lot of a talk about uh, how social nets and social security is important. There needs to be a lot of talk already prior to the, to the disaster for such policies to take place after the disaster. Instead of just being all like negative and just giving up, we should like try to make conversations because communicating is important and like putting out a voice that says that I'm I'm for this particular policy is also very important because otherwise people will feel like they are like overwhelmed by the other side yeah yeah ensuring that there's an understanding amongst everyone and uh ensuring that everyone's viewpoint is accounted for irrespective of how scattered and discontinuous everything might seem in a disaster yeah exactly it's like there needs to be a prior conversation before before the disaster about the degree of fall society already had so after the disaster, we can actually act on it because the disaster can like provide a push for the better. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think this is a lot related to disaster preparedness. Uh, we've always seen like all these physical and technical things that are taken into consideration whenever we talk about disaster. Yeah. But relating to economic policy, there's very less talk. And because yeah. there is very less talk relating to economic policy, disaster capitalism exists in the first place. So yeah, I mean, we need to have talks before the disaster. So I guess that's it for this episode. Thanks for joining, guys.